Hi, welcome to Disrupt. Today is the first episode of a brief mini series that we're going to do on the different categories of actors when it comes to nuclear states. So we decided to break our mini series up into three different categories. Um, those that have nuclear weapons, um, which we're going to do today, and we're going to talk about Russia and China. Um, those who want nuclear weapons, and we'll focus on Iran and North Korea, and those who gave up nuclear weapons, which would be South Africa and Libya. Yeah, and kind of similar to our other episodes, we're going to go through what the different critical approaches bring to it so you can kind of see a different way of viewing it than you otherwise would have before. We thought it would be useful and topical to start with Russia and China um, because, you know, they're in the news all over the place, whether you're reading U.S.-dominated news or international news. When you think of states that have nuclear weapons that are not the U.S., those are the first two countries you tend to think of. So when talking about Russia and China in nuclear dialogues, um, if we were a traditional IR podcast, we'd be talking about things like um, how nuclear weapons figure into a balance of power between these three states, um, especially balancing U.S. hegemony um, and whatnot. But like Gabby said, we are taking critical approaches to these We'll start with our two favorite approaches, <laughs> um, post-colonial and decolonial approaches. The and approaches. they are the best. It's true. Um, and if I were taking a decolonial lens, my first sort of thought that I would have is why do certain Western states, particularly the U.S., have this huge problem with Russia and China having nuclear weapons, even though Russia got its weapons in 1949 and China did in 1964. So it's been a really, really long time. And yet the way that U.S. Um, approaches and policies talk about nuclear weapons in Russia and China is very different than the way they talk about nuclear weapons with France, the U.K. or Israel. Totally. And I think when you look at it historically, or at least I'm reflecting back on, you know, what I was taught about these two countries having nuclear weapons it's like oh communism is bad and the russians are trying to take over the united states and you know just thinking about all the history i learned with like the red scare and the threat of nuclear war and everything mm -hmm. So there's all these historical reasons why the United States has been like, it's really terrible that these other countries have nuclear weapons and we need to keep our nuclear weapons to make sure they don't use their nuclear weapons against us and whatnot. But then the more you dig into it, there are these more insidious motives, I think, behind um, the way the U.S. has taken its nuclear posture towards Russia and China that have a lot of um, imperial ways of thinking in terms of Russia and China, you're doing things that we don't like. And so we are going to threaten you with nuclear weapons and sort of build up, build both of these countries up to be these menacing warmongering states that want nothing more to, than to destroy the United States. Yeah. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense because Russia and China are not Western states. So they have a history of doing things very differently than Western states think of as normal. So there's a lot of conflict in how nuclear technology is used. Nuclear weapons are thought about and the way they're talked about. Um, 
But what's really interesting is that, you know, the West is always like, oh, we don't want to give up our power. This is like a huge threat to our security. But they are forced to act really differently with Russia and China and states that have nuclear weapons because they can't just dismiss them, which then, you know, I think a lot of traditional IR scholars and traditional policy people, they say, oh, why would other states want to have nuclear weapons? They're so expensive, so dangerous, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But then you can see the way that the U.S. is forced is forced to treat Russia and China so differently because their voices become legitimized when they get that nuclear power. Totally. They become equals in terms of the power that they wield. Whereas, you know, the United States, because of its like the racism inherent in U.S. foreign policy and whatnot, we tend to view China and Russia through this like lesser than lens, but you're totally right. And I think that was a really smart way to put it in the way that nuclear weapons legitimize Russia and China in the eyes of the United States. And I think we'll see this theme a lot in the rest of our mini series where you see states like North Korea and Iran who want nuclear weapons. And part of the reasoning behind that is because they're not taken seriously or their sovereignty is violated or they're just not respected by the United States. But once they have these nuclear weapons, um, they're sort of a mechanism to, to force the United States hand in treating them as equals and not having their sovereignty violated. It's so true. And I think that also reminds me of a different, I don't, I don't know if this is a critical point or not, but just the role that nuclear weapons have discursively and, you know, not that a state has them, but just this idea that they change so much the way that you are perceived and the way that you perceive the world. If you're like, I have this enormous weapon or this enormous capacity to do a huge amount of damage to someone else, it just changes the way that you conduct the war and the way you conduct relations with other states. And it's just, I mean, I'm sure there's a study out there, um, but just the way that societies have been built in countries that have nuclear weapons. So like Russia and China, the way that there are these secret nuclear cities in Russia that still people can't enter. Um just kind of speaks to the way that having nuclear weapons, having these, this technology really changes the way that a society grows. Totally. And this is, you know, I don't have a coherent thought around this at the moment, but um, this has got me thinking about sort of more feminist perspectives on um, nuclear dialogues between Russia, China, and the United States in terms of the role that language plays in, um, like national security dialogues in general, and especially nuclear dialogues, just, you know, we are a big, strong country. We have big weapons. You got me thinking though, there's this, um, oh gosh, really old school Russian um, promotional video about the, the friendly power of the atom. And it's like, you know, back in the 1960s. Oh, <laughs> So when everyone was like, ah, yes, we won't have to use oil and gas. We will all only use nuclear weapon or nuclear technology and da, 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 da. And it's funny because like you watch that now and it seems so outlandish, but then I'm like, well, I know we had that discourse in the U S too. Like I'm not as aware of it, but I know it was there. Oh, totally. And that also makes me think of the ways that 
you know, nuclear, I guess, accidents or like missteps have to be sort of covered up or um, like shielded over because they almost present as like a break in this masculine front or this invincible, um, you can't mess with me posture that these countries are sort of I don't know, forced to take, but that they adopt because they have nuclear weapons. Okay. Allow me to take a really nerdy dive into an article I just read yesterday. Um, Please do. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's by um, Jenna Subotic. In 2016, she wrote this article about ontological dissonance. um, And she talks about this idea that states have ontological, they, they seek ontological security, which is like the continuation of the themselves. So to have this biograph, autobiographical um, way, and then things that threaten that are things like globalization or something that threatens their sense of self. Um, but she coined this term called ontological dissonance, where there are many things that are trying to attack your sense of ontological security at once. And so you choose kind of certain parts of the narrative to bring into your autobiography and you like deactivate other parts. And that's changing all the time because you want to do things that sort of build this, like you're talking about this narrative bridge and you say, Oh, we're not going to talk about Chernobyl or three mile Island, but let's talk about, you know, nuclear power and all the things it can do. And it just this constant sort of activation and deactivation process. And you just reminded me of it when you were talking about that. Well, now I'm just picturing like a Tinder profile for every country <laughs> where they're like putting their best foot forward and like, ah, yeah, we had a little, we had a little nuclear mishap, but that's, that's for date like four. We won't talk about that. That needs to be in an article. Now I want to like make that I, chart. Oh my God. Should we make, should we write that article? Yeah, we should. <laughs> It really, you're describing this, and I was like, this is exactly like an online dating profile. I love it. I'm just going to write just, that down. You should. It was It was so funny. Like, when I was reading it, I was like, what a great way of thinking about that. Okay. Let's get back to it. Okay. So another really interesting part of nuclear weapons that are often ignored Um in traditional theories and traditional policy is nuclear testing. And we can talk specifically about Russia here because we talked in our last episode about nuclear testing in the Pacific by the U.S. But of course, Russia did a lot of its testing for nuclear weapons in Central Asia and the Arctic. And they legitimately chose these areas because it's the periphery sections of their empire. And there's not a lot of research into how people in Central Asia are recovering. Um, And of course, you know, the obvious thing here is that these people are non-white, um, which kind of reinforces this whole nuclear testing happens in areas where there are not white people. Um, and then France did the exact same thing in Africa. Um, yeah. I think it was close to two dozen, maybe over two dozen um, nuclear tests that they um conducted in Africa and there was actually a really huge and I forget what countries it was in um where they conducted the test but there were some really really significant um grassroots movements to stop um French nuclear testing in Africa um and largely they were it was these grassroots movements um 
which were the reasons that France decided to stop their nuclear testing. Um, you know, they claimed other reasons, mm-hmm. but if it wasn't for the work of these activists, um, and I'm like kicking myself for, of course, my the book that I read this in is like lost in my house <laughs> somewhere. Um, but if it wasn't for these activists, then it who knows how long it would have been going on for. And I think even in something as like big as nuclear issues and nuclear politics, how far removed that seems from like people's daily life, or at least um, a lot of people's daily life, like individuals can make a difference um, in these sort of things. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a really good point. And I think people also are what make up institutions and that can help deal with the after effects, you know, where people can't necessarily make a difference. So like, you know, where there's a whole bunch of leftover radiation in an area or legitimate nuclear submarines resting in the bottom of the Arctic ocean. Um, They individual people maybe can't make a huge difference in that sense, but they can't influence policy. And, you know, now that Russia is holding the chairmanship of the Arctic Council, one of the big things that they're doing is working towards nuclear cleanup because there is so much um, debris that hasn't caused too much damage yet. But how long can it stay at the bottom of the ocean uh, indefinitely? Probably not. Can I ask, like, what what made them decide like, oh yeah, we should, we should clean this up was, did someone force their hand? Are they seeing like, like, are they not able to fish there anymore? Like, because I don't know, countries now, especially big, powerful ones, they don't really think in terms of like, oh, let's do this because it's the right thing to do. You know what I mean? It's definitely not that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think, Russia has been trying to clean up the area for a really long time. It has been like kind of this underlying thing of like, oh, we need to retrieve these nuclear rods. And it, as you said, it's not for just goodwill, but it may affect fishing there in the future. So that, you know, has an effect on Russia. That has an effect on all of the other states in the area. So it's probably to build goodwill. And of course, the Arctic Council is not about military issues and security issues, and they try to find other things to focus on. Um, and they tend to focus on environmental problems, uh, which, which of course, nuclear pollution is a huge one. Totally. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the last thing, at least, that I wanted to touch on was Chernobyl, since we're talking about Russia. Um, are we talking about the incredible HBO series? I would love to because it's so good. <laughs> One of my favorite things about that, though, I love how they gave everyone British accents. But I know, <laughs> whatever. Continue. Small plug: There's a podcast that HBO made that follows the whole creation, and they do interviews with the producers, and they talk about why they chose to do that, for example, and why they made other choices about um, including certain parts of the story or not including certain parts of the story. So I would recommend that everyone go listen to it. There's an episode for every episode of the show. So yeah. I love stuff like that. Yeah, it's really, when they really did it for Game of Thrones. Oh my God. <gasps> not the podcast, but like um, they had behind the scenes stuff with like the creation of the set and costumes and casting. I'm like, mm-hmm. oh my God, this is almost better than the show itself. It is. Yeah. Um, but Chernobyl please (laughs) yeah so I guess it's just sort of 
this idea that if you were to go to a nuclear security institute in D.C., you would not talk about Chernobyl. You would talk about nuclear proliferation and nuclear terrorism and all these things that are important but obscure, you know, the ramifications of what happened because of Chernobyl. So a huge amount of people can't live in large parts of Ukraine. There are higher rates of cancer, birth defects. Um, It's just a really interesting example of how it took so long for the USSR to respond to this because it was so important for them not to admit the failure of containing the situation, which goes back to what you were talking about and the importance of rhetoric and masculinity, which comes from feminism. You had this final question here. Yeah, this is something I was toying. (sighs) I was really just thinking about, and this is also because I'm writing this article about how um, these imperial and colonial mindsets like within the United States have really affected the relationship between um, Iran and the United States and especially their nuclear politics And I was just sort of struck by like, yeah, we're talking about theory a lot in this podcast, but it's like these have real and very significant policy consequences. Um, And I feel like that's been threaded throughout what we've been talking about. So that's where I was kind of going with this question, but I couldn't, but I feel like we've already been talking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, but I mean, you make a really interesting point. I think in political science academia, there's just this huge like propensity to only talk about theory and theory is important, but you have to connect it to, you know, okay, let's say whatever. All of the people in the State Department are just like, think they're just acting rationally and normally but actually they're acting in a very, you know, realist perspective and they just don't notice it. So when you don't notice the type of maybe moral compass and your assumptions that you make about the world, you act in like a very particular way, if that makes sense. Totally. I'm the article I'm writing, I'm sort of um, making some policy suggestions for Biden's nuclear posture. And one of the things I'm suggesting is the removal of sanctions. Um, And I'm thinking about challenges to my suggestion. And it's like, well, if you remove sanctions on Iran, then you're giving up all the United States leverage. And it's, that's such a realist way of thinking about that. Um, Instead of like, you know, it shows goodwill to remove sanctions and you're treating them like an equal. And I feel like a lot of people are going to come back and say, you know, that's a very naive way Mm -hmm. Um, to think about international politics and I mean you know who knows maybe (laughs) so but like I do know the way that we are like conventionally thinking about nuclear politics as this like we must maintain hegemony we must maintain power like look at where that's gotten us it's not a good place so yeah no I think you make like A really important point there that, um, you know, maybe people will think you're naive for making this suggestion to drop sanctions, but at the same time, are they not also naive for continuing to think in this like very 
you know, bounded up way of seeing the world without saying, well, what would happen if we didn't think of this idea of containing them and, you know, nuclear parity with places like Russia and nuclear modernization to counteract the threat from China? Like, that is also a very naive way of thinking about international politics. It just so happens to be the hegemonic and current main way of viewing the world. Totally. And the thing with, like, sanctions is people, you know, people might call the removal of sanctions naive. But then if you look at um, all of these studies, like, who do sanctions hurt? Sanctions hurt people, like individuals, they don't hurt the regime. And especially in the case of Iran, like the United States has slapped on sanction after sanction after sanction. And largely it has not deterred Iran from its its policies, like its domestic or its foreign policies. So these sanctions have really done nothing but hurt the Iranian people. Like they're, they're not consequences for the regime. And so, and then what does that do in the mind of the Iranian people? Like it forces them or like not forces, but then you can see the, I can see from the people's perspective, why you might buy into the regime's characterization of the United States as this like evil Imperial power. It's like, yeah, the United States isn't getting what it wants from Iran. So we punish you. Like that's obviously a very um, Imperial move. And I just, Mm -hmm. even like people might say it's naive, but it's just, I don't think it is at all when you look at like the data and whatnot. And there really just needs to be like a shift in mindset about so many different, this was just one example, but so many different policies that are considered to be like, well, we got to make the strong move. And it's like, well, the strong move, I think ultimately just makes you pretty weak. Yeah, no, it's, um, it gets me thinking about, you know, the situation in Belarus right now. And I don't know what the Biden administration is doing, but I've heard that, you know, of course they're sanctioning them, but (laughs) apart from the traditional sanctions, they're also going to put some kind of proactive policy to protect journalists. And I was like, if we could do stuff like that more often, like, you know, rather than just like, as you said, like sanctioning, hurting the people, making policies and coming up with ideas that are novel and that, address the people that are actually really hurting at the hands of some of these regimes would maybe be a much more, uh, it would be a stronger move, you know, and would help to prop up people rather than bring down a regime. Totally. And I, you know, sometimes I struggle in thinking this way because I'm like, these policies I'm proposing, I'm like, well, in my mind, it's just like, it's the right thing to do. Like, Uh, but yeah, I think, Unless you have anything else to add, that's probably a good place to wrap up. So that's all we have today on Russia and China and the nuclear politics with the United States. Um, Next time, we're going to focus on states that want nuclear weapons and the politics behind that. And specifically, we'll focus on um, North Korea and Iran. Yeah, we're excited to talk to you then. And if you want to reach out to us, you can slide into our DMs at disruptrcp on Twitter or disruptrcp at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.